G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Let me ask you the harder one. How many of you want to give up on God and just walk away? Hi, and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. We're in our Advent series, and today Pastor Jeff's next message is called Waiting on the Return. It's all about waiting for the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus will be back. This is Advent, knowing and waiting and trusting. No matter how bad it looks, no matter what you do or do not understand, it's not over because the King will come. The King always comes. This is Today with Jeff Vines. All right, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. You're ready to go. Luke chapter one, verse five. Luke chapter one, verse five. And while you're turning to that passage as we continue our series in Advent, a couple of quick questions to ask you. Okay, Luke one, five, first question. How many of you in the room have ever thought about quitting a job? Really? Really, wow. Okay, now... As you know, there's nothing worse, I I don't think, uh, and it's probably overstated, but there's nothing worse than going to a job every day that you absolutely hate. There's something about sucking the life right out of you. Even if you're making money, man, sometimes you say, man, I don't care how much money you pay me, this is killing me. And so how many of you have had that struggle and you've thought about quitting a job, uh, but don't raise your hands on this one, but you didn't quit. You stayed in it and because you might have said, well, you know, I got to feed the kids or I, I, I can't quit. I got college loans or whatever. How many of you stayed in it? And then I want you to think about what enabled you to endure, to stay in something that you hated so much. What was it that enabled you? Was it something that you, you had the hope it was going to get better? You had to make a living or you didn't have another job available. You were scared of what it would take. If you quit that job, would you get another one? How many of you have ever thought about giving up? On your marriage. Now, don't raise your hands on this one, especially if your wife's seated right next to you. Have you ever thought about giving up on your marriage? Yes, I have. We all have, man. If you've been married any length of time, man, that that thought goes through your head. Because when you get married, it's hard work. And there comes a point when you say, you know what, this is too hard. And so some people say, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I know it hits close to home, and I'm sorry about that. And I know that God is gracious and merciful. But for those of you who decided, you know what, I'm not going to give up on it, I want to ask you the question, what caused you to stay? When everything within you wanted to run, why'd you stay? And then what enabled you to stay in a marriage that was very difficult? Was it the hope that something would get better? Was it the faith that maybe God would move and do something unique, special, whatever? How many of you thought about giving up on marriage? How many of you thought about giving up on a dream? I mean, this is something that you've been hoping for since you were a little boy, a little girl. And somewhere in your mid-30s, maybe, it started to dawn on you, you know, I'm running out of time here. I'm probably not going to be able to be an NBA basketball star. You know? I can't run, jump, shoot, or play defense, but I, I'm holding in there, you know? Or maybe you wanted to be a singer or a dancer. I don't know what, or maybe you wanted to be a pastor. Well, I don't know, but suddenly it dawned on you. But any, anyway, for some of you, you've stayed anyway. So some of you might be 60 years old and you're thinking, you know what, I'm, I'm still not giving up that, that dream. 
If you're that kind of person, what is it about you? There's a Greek word in the Bible, hupomone, it means enduring power. What is it about you? What is it about the situation that everything within you wanted to get out of it, but you stayed in? What helped you stay in? Let me ask you the harder one. How many of you wanted to give up on God and just walk away? Maybe something happened in your life and you just couldn't harmonize it with a pastor who tells you that God is good, loving, merciful, and kind, and yet you had a young child die. You had a relationship that just was fractured. It broke up and you're devastated. You're not sure how you're going to go on. You saw things, you've seen things, you've heard things. Your childhood, I don't know what it is, but there's something inside you wants to give up on God. And for many of you, you did, or at least you're a spiritual drifter. A spiritual drifter is someone who's not in, they're not out. They're here because they know there's something, but they're really not totally committed because they just can't figure out how God works. And it bothers them that they don't know how God works. And they're upset with God on some things in their lives that they figured he allowed to happen, that if you were God, you would have never allowed to happen. So you're a drifter. You're in, you're out. You're not sure where you are. And Advent is for you. Because one of the primary messages of Advent is that God created time, but he doesn't see time the way you and I do, and he, neither does he see your circumstances the way you and I do. You and I look at it from a finite, temporary, life between the trees perspective. God looks at everything from a beyond the trees, from an eternal perspective, and there's no way you and I could have his because we're so limited. As a matter of fact, the psalmist tried to teach us this in chapter 90, verse two and four, before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you're God. So before you even created anything, you were around. You have no beginning, you have no end. And then he says in verse four, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. Wow, a thousand years is like a day? An economist came to God. I heard this story a couple years ago and said to God, God, is it true that a million years is like one day to you? God said, yeah, I guess you could put it that way. So a billion years then would be like one minute. Yeah, I guess that would be true. Then a billion dollars would be like one cent, right? God said, I suppose that's true. And he said, good, can I have one of those cents? And God said, sure, just wait here one minute. You and I don't think like God thinks. And in Isaiah chapter five, we've already read in first week of Advent, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. We know his name's gonna be wonderful, counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. He's gonna have a government to rest on his shoulders and his kingdom will have no end. But here's the problem. By the time we get to Luke one, where I'm gonna read just in a few moments, it's been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and nothing has happened. They've been waiting. More prophecies, more stories. People have been ready, generation after generation. Some gave up, said, we're checkmated, man. This is a dream pie in the sky. It's not gonna happen. God has forgotten us. He's forsaken us. Let's go on with our lives. And I don't know what our forefathers thought they saw or heard, but it doesn't really matter anymore because it's been too long. Let's go on. And yet within every generation, the Bible says there is a remnant, a small group of people who refuse to give up and refuse to stop waiting and were faithful in doing all that God had asked them to do, waiting Year after year, two of those people in the Bible are Zechariah and Elizabeth, and you'll find their story in Luke 1.5. Here's how we start it. The time of Herod, the king of Judea, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to a priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was of a descendant, also a descendant of Aaron. Why does the Bible tell us this? It tells us this because Zechariah came from a long line of people who had been faithful and waited and waited on God and got nothing, or at least not what they expected to get. Zechariah was a pastor or priest 
Zechariah's dad was a priest. Zechariah's granddaddy was a priest. Zechariah's great-granddaddy was a priest. It's a family and generation of priesthood helping people far from God come near to God. I did some study this week on Stephon Curry, quite a basketball player. Some say he's reinventing the game. What most of you don't know, or at least some of you don't know, is that his father was also a fantastic basketballer. I grew up in Del Curry, Stephon's father's generation. He was quite a player. 15 years in the NBA. You stay in the NBA 15 years, man, you got some game. He scored 9,839 points and was the all-time leading scorer for the Charlotte Hornets franchise. 929 career threes in 15-year career. 15 years. He has a son, Stephon Curry. Stephon Curry, in five years in the NBA, has already outscored his father. And his father was no slouch. All-star, career NBA player, five years. He's already outscored his father. He's already hit over 1,300 threes in five years. It took his father 15 years to hit 929, and he was a star. The writer wants us to know that Zechariah's family comes from good stock. Generation after generation of people waiting, teaching, waiting, teaching, hoping, trusting, Verse six says, both of them, Elizabeth and Zechariah, they were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. What does that mean? We're talking about a time of Old Testament laws. This is, this is before Jesus brought grace. You got food laws, cleanliness laws, sacrificial laws. You got laws about laws, rings and rings of paper, books and books about laws. And the Bible says that they were blameless. That is, if you sent a private investigator to investigate Zechariah and Elizabeth, they'd find nothing. They're totally clean. Now, what is all that getting them? Verse seven, they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. It's amazing. Day after day, they're waiting for the Messiah. They're serving God in the temple. They're helping those far from God come near. They're they're doing good. They're good people doing good stuff, faithful and blameless. And God had left them barren, which would have been a great shame in the days of Elizabeth. Because in the days of Elizabeth, if you couldn't have a child, it was believed that you were cursed by God because you had done some great sin and he had abandoned you. And so now, even though she's prayed hard, she's lived well, the one thing she wants most from God, she cannot get. This is Today with Jeff Vines. We're in our Advent series and today we're being encouraged that our faith is not misplaced and to be patient while waiting on the return. Now, it's important also to remember that the promise that she's banking on just isn't Isaiah's promise. He goes back 2,000 years to Abraham. Think about it. She's living her life and she has aligned her life based on a promise thousands of years ago. But since that promise, regime after regime has come and defeated Israel. 25 regime changes. The Syrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans had all conquered Israel Israel had been exiled, enslaved, occupied, and finally dispersed. They no longer had international influence. They were just a small nation defeated. In 65 BC, 65 years before Jesus will come, Pompey the Great, the great Roman general, will march into Jerusalem. He will march past the outer gates. He will will march past the outer doors, into the inner doors, into the Holy of Holies. A place where the Jews believe that if you arrived at the Holy of Holies inside, uninvited, that God would surely strike you dead. And Pompey walks in, looks around, desecrates the temple, violates everything that is pure and sacred, walks back out again, 
and brings desecration and destruction on the temple. And the word starts to spread throughout Jerusalem with clear implications. Jupiter, the God of the Romans, is more powerful than Yahweh. The reason that's important is Zechariah would have been a little boy when that happened and he would have seen his father come home and tear his clothes in mourning and cry out, God, why did you not defend yourself? God, why did you allow the desecration of your temple? Why did you do nothing? Why did you sit on your hands? And yet Zechariah, having seen that as a little boy, still went into the priesthood. He didn't understand why God allowed the desecration of his own temple, but he did know that God was trustworthy and he believed that was part of God's plan, whatever he was doing to bring redemption. And Zechariah will serve his entire life as his grandfather did, as his father did, as his great-grandfather did, and he marries Elizabeth and Elizabeth is just as faithful and true and blameless and they kept waiting even when their friends came and said, dude, it's over. Game over. Check out. Checkmate. Go back home. It's a myth. It's a legend. Go on with your life. Forget about all this stuff, man. God's abandoned you. But they refused to give up. And then just out of nowhere, at least from our perspective, out of nowhere, verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now here's the deal. That doesn't mean a lot to you and me. Let me explain what's going on here. You got 23 divisions of priests. There's a lot of priests. Most priests will go through their entire lifetime not getting to do or participate in the special privilege of getting to go and stand just outside the Holy of Holies and burn incense and prayers to God while all your other priest brothers stood on the outside. You got to go inside, just not inside the Holy of Holies, but just outside the curtain. So they would cast lots to see who would get to go. And if you were ever elected or chosen to go once, you could never go twice. Once you did it, that was it. But most priests would go through their entire service to the Lord and never get to stand just outside the Holy of Holies. And this time, Zechariah is chosen in his old age and he gets to go in and offer prayers and he gets the shock of his life. In verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Why does the angel say, do not be afraid? Because when people see angels in the Bible, they are afraid. So he gets it right out of the way. Don't be afraid. That's why I find it interesting when people today say, hey, I saw an angel and they're these cute little cuddly things that you find on Google images. And we have little angels on our mantles and everything. We say, and I've had people say to me, last night I spoke with an angel and I'll say, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. If you spoke with a Bible angel, you'd steer still to this day. You'd, you'd be in a straitjacket. You'd be crazy right now. They're big. They're powerful. They're scary. Even when they're not trying to be, even when they turn down the fear gauge a notch or two, they're still overwhelming, powerful, scary people. They're terrifying. That's why even when the angel brings Zechariah good news, Zechariah's still terrified. Even when Zechariah lives a blameless life, he's still terrified of the angel of the Lord. Imagine what it would be like for you and me. Man, we'd start naming names, confessing, make promises, beg for mercy, right? <laughs> Zechariah's a blameless man. The angel brings good news. He's, he's still terrified. The angel says, your prayer's been heard. Your, your wife, Elizabeth, she's gonna have a baby. You're gonna call him John. He's gonna be a joy and a delight to you. People are gonna rejoice. And then in verse 16, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Bring back, why? Because people had gone away. They'd given up, thrown in the towel, called it quits. It's been so long since they've talked about the promise. People just went on with their lives. They'd become weary and waiting. And so they left, gave up, gave in. It's over. End of the story. Now, you know that Elizabeth's going to have a child and he's going to be John the Baptist. 
And you know that Elizabeth is related to Mary. And he's going to preach a message that says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or near. And when he says that, John the Baptist, some people are going to look at him. In fact, most people are going to say, dude, really? The kingdom of God, man, we gave up on that years ago. What are you talking about? Get with the times, man. We gave up. It's not coming. And John the Baptist is going to say, well, you shouldn't have. And then comes the most diplomatic verse in the Bible. Luke 1, 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? Look at this. I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Don't you love that? You know, I'm an old man and my wife is uh, well along in years. <laughs> and then Zechariah says, dude, and you know, it's not in the scripture. It's in the white space between the next two verses. You can imagine Zechariah saying, man, we prayed in our 20s, nothing. We prayed in our 30s. We prayed in our 40s. We prayed in our 50s, nothing. Dude, you're late. We're old. Mr. Angel, sir, your honor, you're late. Surely you are late. Gabriel says, don't call me Shirley. In verse 19, he says, I am Gabriel. (laughs) And when he says I'm Gabriel, it's his way of saying, do I look like a soft, weak, fragile messenger to you? Dude, I've been in the presence of God. God sent me to tell you something. Verse 20. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. I can tell you there are many, many times in my life I wish I had not spoken or could not speak, especially in conversations with my wife. I'd take those words back if I could. But if Zechariah could have spoken, I think he'd say something like this. Do you mean that God marked this day on his calendar a long time ago? Do you mean even when things look really bleak and we had regime changes, God knew what he was doing? That God still had a plan, that he had an agenda, that he knew exactly what he was doing? Do you mean when Pompey came in and desecrated the temple, God knew that was going to happen? That he knew that people would shame Elizabeth because she was barren? That even when Elizabeth cried out and said, God, hear my prayer, I'd like to have a child, and she felt like you weren't listening, that you were listening, you still had a plan, you were still operating, you were still engaging, You were still doing what you'd always planned to do. Nothing caught you by surprise. Even when many of our friends came to us and said, go home, give up, it's over. Even when things look really, really bad all those years, really, you were still in control. Now back to the text, it says, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering what was taking so long. (laughs) You think, well, I love that. Verse 22, when he came out, he couldn't speak to them. Well, the angel said, you're not going to speak until it happens. And they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. You think about that. Dude, what took you so long, man? Where'd you been? But he can't say anything. What does he do? First game of charades. (laughs) Angel. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Baby. Angel's going to have a baby. No, 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 no. Angel. We're going to have a baby. And he's going to be a king. He's going to be the Messiah. Verse 23, when the time had finished, when his time of service in the temple had come to completion. Verse 24, Elizabeth goes home for five months. She remains in seclusion. Verse 25, she says, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. It's her way of saying God was gearing up to do what he had planned to do all along. This is Advent. Knowing and waiting, and trusting. No matter how bad it looks, no matter what you do or do not understand, it's not over because the king will come. The king always comes. It may not be how you expect it or when you expect it, but one thing is certain, the king always comes. 
That's the story of Christmas. It's a reminder that your faith is not misplaced. And it's not only that you're waiting on second advent, it's you knowing the first advent has already come. So God is with you now. Emmanuel, God is with us. There's never a time, never a journey, never a season where God is not with you no matter how it feels. The objective truth is that God is always near. And even when you can't understand what he's doing, he knows what he's doing because he's God. He's not distant. He is here, right here, right now with you. In your sorrow, the king comes. In your sadness, the king will come. In your fear and anxiety, the king will come. In your despair and depression, the king will come. He always comes. And even in those seasons when you feel like that there's no way out, no way around, no way through, don't stop waiting. Don't stop watching. Advent tells you that the king will come. The king always comes. Don't give up. This is Today with Jeff Vines. We'll continue waiting on the return next time on the program. I hope you can join us then to hear more about the arrival of Jesus in our Advent series. The writer of the book of Isaiah tells us we'll do more than just survive, we will thrive. He says, God gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak, even use Young men grow tired and weary. But verse 31, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Today with Jeff Vines, just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.